Now, if you're new, popped in recently, or you've been in and out a lot this summer, uh, let me catch you up on what we've been doing here as we're doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's always good to keep in mind, especially from here on out in your messages the rest of this summer, that Jesus was speaking to a crowd that was in need of good news, a crowd that had found life not always pleasant to them. And the good news that he shared with them is mentioned in the Beatitudes as he called them the poor in spirit, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. He goes on to point out that the covenant that was made with Abraham is also valid for them, even those poor in spirit. And everything that follows then is the explanation of what it means to be that special people, to be the special people who follow Jesus and live to that higher ethic. And today that is especially true as he calls us to love our enemies. Let me also again reissue the challenge to try and, and reread the Sermon on the Mount each week during this summer series. It's just three chapters. It'll take you just 15 minutes to do so because the more it becomes a part of your thinking, the more it can shape your life because this shares the essence of the kingdom of God according to Jesus. Now, the first thing it's important to do if we're going to apply this passage is to get a handle on who our enemies are. And it's a little more complicated than it used to be. You remember during World War II, it was very clear who our enemies were. You had the Japanese and the Nazis on one side, the Allied forces on the other. They flew planes with clear markings. Uniforms were clearly identified. We knew who the enemy was. Follow that with the Cold War, and it was communism versus democracy. We knew who our enemies were, at least we thought we did. But now we live in a global world, a global economy. And friend or foe is not always so easy. Just even right now, we can't decide, is China going to be our friend or foe? We know we have trouble living with them, but we probably economically can't live without them. In the age of terrorism, it's hard to know. Some people want to blame other religions, certain countries, and yet we, we discover that now in our diverse world that we have some of those very people from those different countries and those different religions now living right next door. The Noblesville school system advertises right now that we have 55 home languages spoken in our school district, 55. So some of the people that we might want to identify as potential enemy might very well be our neighbor and might, if we give them a chance, even become one of our best friends. It is a complicated world. I'm not sure how complicated it was in Jesus' day. It certainly, from our passage, suggests it's more complicated than we might make it to be. But if you polled the average Jew in Jesus' day, the number one answer would be in that poll, the Roman Empire. Rome had conquered Israel. They were subjected to that rule. There were taxes enforced upon them. They were having to pay those taxes to Caesar, who sometimes claimed to be a god. It was an affront to the religious convictions of the Israelites, and they resented it greatly, especially when they had that Roman law that at any time they could force a subject to carry their backpack or water or provide transportation for one mile. Can you imagine how that would seethe in the average Jew's heart? They were definitely the enemy. So much so that when Jesus died in 49 AD, then in 70 AD, the Zealots, a political faction within Israel, rose up and revolted against that Roman rule. And the result was the destruction of Israel, the 
in 74 AD. And if you ever go to Israel, you'll go visit Masada where you see the, the uh, story told of those persons who did a mass suicide once it became apparent the Romans were about to overtake them. The enemy was definitely the Roman Empire, but Jesus' passage makes it clear that sometimes the Jewish people could be their own enemy. It makes reference to business transactions, and that can always be the case, can it not? Anytime you enter in a, a business a relationship, there is that opportunity for those conditions to change from the original agreement, or one party doesn't live up to the expectation of that original contract, and so what do they do? They end up in court and rely on a third party to make the decision and rule. Jesus even suggests sometimes it could be our close friend or family. Have you ever borrowed? Have you ever loaned money to a family member? How did that work out? Yeah, it happened in those days too. And Jesus advises to just let it go. Our enemies come in many shapes and forms. Sometimes they're close, sometimes they're groups, sometimes they're not so evident. Jesus' point is that we can continue to resort and take the approach of the world and use that of retaliation and protection, or we can live to Jesus' way that considers an ethic that rises above the fray and transforms the hostilities that separate us. And Jesus lives this out. In the uh, scripture, Jesus says, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is referring to a, the Mosaic Law, the law of the land for the Jewish people. And that law, the rules were considered to be the will of God. It, it took on a different form. Most believe that when it was instituted, it was an improvement and advancement in civilization. And the reason was it put a curb on the escalation of violence. It put an end to revenge and called for what we would describe today as equal retribution or equal punishment. The, the punishment should fit the crime, which is certainly a part of our legal system. It's described in Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20. If someone injures a fellow citizen, they will suffer the same injury they inflicted. Broken bone for broken bone, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The same injury inflicted on the other will be inflicted on them. That may not sound all that advanced to us, but in that day it was. But even then, it's understood very quickly that this retribution was converted to fines. Because after all, think about it. If you're near a small village, and you're in that village, if you have equal retribution, you're going to have a lot of people run around with blindness or broken bones. And on a village that is dependent on each other, you need each other's labor. And so quickly they revert to find some Jewish rabbis say that even really from the beginning, this was understood as a symbolic statement. But either way, equal retribution was the expectation. And then Jesus comes along and calls for a different ethic. Jesus said, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, some describe this as an ethic from beyond or an ethic from above. Others call it defiant love. But what's important to understand is that Jesus is calling us to respond to these acts of violence from a position of power, not meekness, a position of power. He's calling us to approach with the assurance 
that God has our future secured. And therefore, we can look beyond to that immediate injury and see the possibility for reconciliation and the chance that if we respond in the right way, we might lead to the conviction of the person causing the injury. Let me explain by talking about the examples that Jesus gave. I'm going to ask Jerry Montag to come up here for a second. I like Jerry. He sits in the front row. He's got a great name, and we go to the same barber. <laughs> Hi, Jerry. Hang tight. Now, let me explain this. Jesus says very specifically, and get the detail, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, on the right cheek. Now, who might be the most likely person to slap a Jewish person in Jesus' day? Any guesses? Gentiles, maybe? Do you have a guess? A Roman soldier, yes, a Roman soldier. That would be very common. Imagine a Roman soldier has, has asked you to carry his backpack or carry some water or provide transportation. If you don't respond quickly enough, they're going to slap you. Now, let's pretend you're the Roman soldier and I'm that Jewish person that has offended you. If you're going to hit me on the right cheek, and remember, right-handedness was the expectation. Remember in the Bible? <laughs> remember in the Bible it says they sit on the right hand of God? Uh, left-handedness was considered a weakness, which really ticks me off because I'm left-handed, but that's beside the point. It was a right-hand dominant world then, as it is even now, I'd say. So if you're right-handed and you're going to hit me on the right cheek, what side of your hand are you going to have to use? That's right. He's going to have to hit me with the back of his hand. Now, this is important. This is really important. Because in Mediterranean culture, if you were going to fight an equal, you would use your fist or the face of your hand, and you would hit them on the other side. But because of that culture, as an insult, it was understood the back of the hand was how you insulted someone. And so the Roman soldier, who were going to be right-handed most of the time, is going to do whatever he can to make sure that that subject knows his place in life. And so he would hit me on the back. Now, what did Jesus say? Turn to him the other cheek. So if I turn this cheek, and you're right-handed, is that going to work? It'll be difficult. It'll be difficult, yes. It will be difficult. Which means... He's going to have to either hit me with his open face or with a fist, which makes me an equal. Jesus' act was an act of defiant love. It's a call. It's a passive resistance that calls for you to stand up and, and call this Roman soldier to consider you an equal, at least to consider the inhumanity of what he's going to continue to do. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate that. And it continues in the other examples that Jesus provides. The next example, what does it say? If someone sues you for your shirt, let them take your coat too. Now, if someone is suing you for your shirt, and that's where we get the phrase, the shirt off your back, comes from this biblical verse. You're going to be pretty poor. You've got nothing else to give. If they're suing you for your shirt, that, that's all you've got left. And Jesus' response is the same thing. He says, give to them your outer garment. 
about what that means. The outer garment by Jewish law could never be sued for. It could never be taken away from someone because it was also used as a blanket at night. It was so vital, the Jewish law did not allow it to ever be taken away. But Jesus says, go ahead and give it to him. You're going to walk out of the court in your loincloth without your inner garment or your outer garment. And imagine the shame that it puts on that other person who's suing you. It will force them to rethink their claim. And the same thing continues in the call. If a Roman soldier calls you to go one mile with them, whether you're providing transportation or carrying his water or even his backpack, go with them too. And think about what that radical love does to the dynamic of that relationship, that Roman soldier who's used to only getting resentment from his subjects in that Jewish nation, now all of a sudden is seeing a different dynamic take place in that second mile. Think about the change in that conversation that's taking place during that second mile. And the last one simply finishes up. It asks for us to give to the beggar or the borrower to trust that God will care for your needs because Jesus doesn't see these as people taking advantage of the system. He sees these as people who have suffered from the system. And therefore, because our needs are cared for, we can be extra generous and reach out and through grace and mercy change the dynamic of that relationship as well. You see, Jesus' way is the way of mercy and he unravels that that law of retribution that was so interwoven in all the Jewish laws to change the relationship that takes place between the offender and the offended. He humanizes the haters. He calls us to imitate God. And Jesus knows what we're up against. But Jesus, these aren't just words. This is not some spiritual stuff in the sky. Jesus lived this, didn't he? Think about the examples we already have. He commended the faith of a Roman centurion, the oppressor. He went to the home of Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector, and changed his life, which changed his relationship to his own people. He commended the Good Samaritan, the hated people of the Jewish people, the rivals to the Jewish people. He speaks and has a theological conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. These are the enemies of Israel. And, and one more little example that I'm sure you've never ever paid attention to before. It's one of those verses that you just skim over quickly. But if you look at this, you notice in verse three, it mentions that in Jesus' inner circle is Joanna, the wife of Herod. That is King Herod, by the way, servant choosing. It doesn't get any closer to the Roman center of power than that. This is someone who's in Jesus' inner circle. You see what Jesus does is he takes the enemies of his people of his day and makes them neighbors. That's what he calls us to do as well. He calls us to live a love so radical that it makes neighbors out of our enemies. Now I know this is a hard teaching. This sounds so idealistic, so pie in the sky that, that if you're new to the Christian faith and never read your Bible, it sounds impossible. But Jesus calls us to this hard work. 
especially when you think about our world, a world that has contained historic figures like Hitler, the realities of the Holocaust. How do you deal with these powers today? How do you trust a dictator in North Korea? How do you trust Russia? How do you love a person who's espousing beliefs that are about 180 degrees from where we are? How do you love that person, maybe even a family member that's a member of that other political party, and you just can't talk politics? How do you love them anyway? Jesus knows it's not easy. Randy Harris says that sometimes our world is like two cowboys who've got their guns pulled, waiting for who's going to drop their gun the first. But what does that lead to? It leads to a world that's on the edge of disaster. It leads to a country like ours that can't seem to come together enough to solve our most critical problems. I'd suggest to you, as impossible as Jesus' words sound today, they deserve to be tried. But here's the problem. Most of the time, this is a long-term strategy. And most of the time, it means that you're going to get slapped some. You're going to get sued. You're going to have to go that extra mile. You're going to have to give until it hurts. And even then, you may not get what you want in your time. Think about the positive examples we've had who lived out this Jesus way in our world. Talk about Nelson Mandela. He's probably the figure most credited with the transformation in South Africa, eliminating the evil apartheid that separated blacks from whites. You know that he was in prison on Robben Island for 27 years? 27 years. He was tempted to fight back. He contemplated it. Even some of his followers went ahead and did, unfortunately, but he chose not to. Instead, he chose to speak. He wasn't passive. He stood up and took it on the chin. But because of his actions, this whole country of South Africa became different. We can talk about Gandhi. Gandhi started his resistance in India in 1930 to rule of Great Britain. It was 1947, 17 years later, that India got its independence from Great Britain. In 1948, he was assassinated by a Hindu fundamentalist. He didn't get to enjoy the fruit of his labors. We can talk about the civil rights movement, the most marked from 1954 to 1968 when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And that work continues on. We still have a ways to go. But look at the length of all of those. See, peacemaking is hard work. It's long work. It's difficult. And I can't honestly ask you to turn the other cheek unless I warn you that it means you will sometimes have to take up your cross and take whatever comes, whether it means being slapped or sued or giving until you've got nothing left. But we are a people of the cross. We also believe in resurrection. Jesus, who lived this out even to his death, was raised once again, and we are people who follow this Lord. So let me end my question in this message with the question I started with. Who is your enemy? We live in a world that's trying to divide us in so many ways. People trying to blame that other religion, that other country, that other people. Who is your enemy? 
Maybe it's that family member you can't get along with who just hurts you over and over. Maybe it's that business partner. Maybe it's that other political party. It's easy to write people off. It's so much easier to hate than to love. But Jesus' way has the hope, the opportunity for reconciliation and for a lasting peace that changes the dynamic. His strategy is love his enemies and make them his neighbors. So I invite you to find your enemy and do your best to make them your neighbor. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we stop now. And probably most of us can think of somebody or some group or some entity that just really gets under our skin. We may not hate, but boy, they sure irritate us. Help us to visualize that person now. And as we provide that face, help us to stop and wonder what what is it that has caused that person to get under our skin? What is the fear that we might have? What is the belief that is central to that? And help us to turn that over to you, Lord. Know that you've got that in your hands. You will help us handle that worry, that fear, that challenge. And then help us to begin to think about what it means to walk that second mile with this particular person or whomever we're dealing with. And help us think once again what it would look like to be reconciled, to get along, to truly love and seek what is in their best interests. Give us the power to trust that you will enable us to do so Give us the patience we need, knowing that the results may not be exactly what we want right here, right now. May we know that you are Lord of all, and therefore we put our trust in you and in your kingdom. In Christ we pray.